Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here for this show. And we are in the middle of an Arctic blast, seems like everywhere in America. But we're all warm and cozy, and uh, we're ready to record a show. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm going to get back there someday. But I'm still in Connecticut right now, and I've written a few things, including in the house of Tom Bombadil. But enough about me. How about you, Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor emeritus of history at Central Connecticut State University, which means I'm retired. (laughs) Um, I'm also a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Great, great. Okay, Tom. I'm Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, Christian ethics, philosophy, and oftentimes whatever else comes down the pike. (laughs) (laughs) I I write. I speak, I talk, might even be preaching here in, in the near future. So all, right, all, right. all of the above. <laughs> great, great. Well, that's good stuff. I'm on my way to uh, New Orleans uh, tomorrow, so I hope it's warm there. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to some good food, and I'm speaking at a yeah. conference. Anyway, by the time this comes out, that will be over. But it's my day today, and I'd like to talk about a book I uh, just uh started reading about maybe, I think, a third of the way through, but there's already just tons of stuff to talk about uh, from the book that I'd like to get into. It's uh, by Paul J. Griffiths, and it's entitled Intellectual Appetite, A Theological Grammar. Intellectual Appetite, yep. From from two angles here. That's right, that's right. <laughs> right. So uh, it uh, captured my attention uh, because it addressed a th- addresses a theme that you ta- touched on uh, some time back, Tom, on the vice of curiosity, yeah. which is something that I think uh, just is a non sequitur for many people because we live in a world today where, you know, inquiring minds want to know. But uh, at another level, uh, the entire uh, education apparatus in higher ed, higher ed right now is all about acquiring new knowledge. Uh, it's not enough to, to have mastered a, a discipline and be the master of things that people have known for centuries. Uh, the research university is all about uh, going where no man has gone before <laughs> and acquiring uh, knowledge uh, with the purpose of, uh, well, helping us master our world uh, more masterfully, I guess you could say. Uh, but uh, in the history of Christian thought, this has not been considered altogether a good thing. There's a good form of inquiry, and there's a not-so-good form of inquiry. And I think the place to begin, of course, is in the Garden of Eden. I mean, what we see there is Adam and Eve are told not to take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So knowledge is in play. There's a there's a, there's forbidden knowledge. There's some place they're not supposed to go. They're not supposed to uh, study evil, you could say, or take it and put bring it into themselves. Because the day that they do that, they will what? They will die. Yeah. So, and and in and uh, in effect, uh, the command is the line that's drawn. And when you disobey the command, that's when you die which is a very subtle way of saying being itself is tied to God and uh, his way of looking at things, doing things, his creative power, all of these things go together. In other words, there's no 
place outside the will of God that uh, you can live. Uh, only in the will of God uh, is it possible to live, and knowing him is life. That's another thing I think it's implied, because when you have fellowship with God, which they had, they enjoyed life. When they disobeyed God, they broke fellowship with him, and they died. And there are, uh, you know, even the physical uh, sort of uh, repercussions, uh, obviously physical death, but spiritual death, physical death, they are cut off from the source of life. Anyway, that I think provides a nice framework for thinking about the fact that there are just some things that we shouldn't know. So anyway, uh, I've kind of lobbed a softball at you guys, and uh, I imagine you got things you'd like to, to say in response. Any thoughts? You want to start, Glenn? Well, in, in the Middle Ages, the definition of curiosity, the, the thing that set curiosity apart from positive inquiry is curiosity was about trying to find secrets that you weren't supposed to have. Right. You know, prying into things from God or the devil that God intended to be kept secret, that he intended for himself or forbidden knowledge coming through Satan. In a very real sense, uh, Faust is probably the prime example of someone with curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And that highlights the problem there. I think we see this too in Tolkien. Yes. Um, he, Particularly in his discussion, you know, uh, in The Lord of the Rings, uh, they talk about Saruman and how perilous it is to study too closely the arts of the enemy. Right. Um, and Tolkien's horror at C.S. Lewis writing the screw tape letters and dedicating it to him. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Jack, <laughs> they, they 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 had a lot. <laughs> they because of what they 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 knew about that world. There's a there's a lot in that. The um I, with Paul Griffiths, he's definitely unpacking that tradition, and he's in particular interested in the Augustinian line. I mean, that's sort of where his emphasis and expertise in each of his writings. Uh, comes about. And I think how I stumbled upon even the first, um, the show we did on it was I was reading this book a while back as I started to revamp a lot of my own thinking, which has been in, in a process of change. One that, you know, holds holds to something of the hierarchical vision, you know, spelled out in classic Christianity, but also the, the kind of ordering of loves. And I think you find in Augustine someone who holds both of these. And I think there, this is a brilliant book where he talks about the fact that the gift character of reality is steeped in the fact that there is a hierarchy, a hierarchy of different things to be related to common goods to be related to and received. And so the curiosity in this basically becomes a deformation of a good, a good uh, aspect about us and, and virtue, and that is studiousness, um, that, that we are made to know. But know is placed, like you say, if you want to use that, that imagery again, in a garden of things that are gifts for us to be used in a certain way with a hierarchy of values that we relate to them and receive them in a certain way. And the incognita, the, the unknowable, like Glenn was talking about, becomes that which is not for us. And what they want to do is take that good appetite and move it away from receiving 
the gift and knowing it and understanding it and being in, in a genuine, proper relation to turn it almost into an idol that ultimately is an idol of themselves. They want to sequester this knowledge, as he puts it, and yeah. master it and, and become the master of the, that domain. Almost what you get with certain forms of scientism and, and yeah. modern philosophy, this, this move away from the gift character to the, the dominance of the will. Yeah, that, that you know, ties into some, some notable uh, things. One is the triumph of the will, and we think about, say, yeah. Adolf Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> or, or you think about, um, you know, the Baconian uh, statement, knowledge is power. Um, uh, and the idea being that, uh, you know, the acquisition of knowledge helps us to just do what you said, dominate. And then t- getting back to Tolkien and Lord of the Rings, what is Saran's ring? Uh, Saran's ring is a means of control. It's dom- to dominate, to dominate uh, initially the other rings of power, bring them under uh, his rule. So dominating the, you know, the free peoples of Middle Earth. But it even uh, uh, is reflected in um, this the, sort of the, the physical terrain, uh, the the, the the elimination of life, uh, uh, just this blight, blighted sort of uh, character to say Mordor or even Isengard later, when you see the the, the results, uh, it's it's almost as if uh, if a, a, a kind of thing can't be dominated and controlled, it shouldn't be permitted to exist. Yeah, um, yeah. That kind of thing. Um, so. You know, this all is uh, remarkably in- interesting to think about. But there's another dimension to this that I've thought about a, a bit. I'm, I'm reflecting on uh, because of my work on my book, uh, How to Defeat the New Totalitarianism. And one of the things that the Internet and our smartphones and uh, the surveillance powers of, uh, you know, corporations and even the state uh, permit or, or make possible is almost a limitless amount of of data recorded about us so that that we can be known without yeah. knowing that we're being known now we all know but like even right now we have devices on that are listening to us yeah. um and we've all had the experience where you know you mention a book and the next thing you know you've got a little <laughs> ad prompting you know you to buy it uh and then and, it's coming to your house for some reason <laughs> <laughs> so there there is a sense in which knowledge um you know in the way we're talking about it is uh something that you want to make certain other people don't have about you and that got me thinking about well it got me thinking about the aftermath of the garden uh the, the temptation and the fall so you have adam and eve and they put on clothes now we all associate that, I think, rightly with the shame they felt. But I think there's another dimension to this, uh, because when the Lord uh, arrives on the scene and does the interrogation, <laughs> uh, he doesn't strip them. Instead, he gives them better clothes. Yeah. Now, we all know that this is a foreshadowing of, the, of, a, of, a, of even better clothing. But I think, you know, in the manifold wisdom of God, God can do a number of things at at, at one time. And I think at least 
uh, we should consider the possibility that what this is saying is, is that there are some things you are permitted to keep to yourself. You don't have to be utterly transparent. In fact, utter transparency uh, is something that puts you at such a disadvantage that uh, you become the target of uh, evil intent if you are too vulnerable, if you're too open, if you're too transparent. And I know that runs counter to many of the things that we're encouraged to be in our, in, even in the church today, we're all told we're supposed to be transparent and, you know, uh, have open relationships with each other. But anyone who's been in, in, involved in a, in a manipulative relationship, uh, and I'm not talking about, you know, strictly say sexual or, uh, uh, but just when you find you are, you're dealing with, say, a, a narcissist or a person who's got some kind of psychosis or just some evil person, <laughs> yeah. you don't want to be known. <laughs> you don't want to give that person stuff to work with if you, if you get my drift. So, you, you know, what you end up doing is withdrawing and becoming opaque because you can't trust the person that you're interacting with. So, again, there's a, there's a curiosity. To, like, you remember National Enquirer? Remember their slogan, inquiring minds want to know? <laughs> yeah. But for no good reason. <laughs> right. It's the wrong kind of intimacy with the gift. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Any thoughts on any of that? Yeah, it's a, that's an interesting side on this. I mean, I, I, mean I, I think that there are definitely, there are problematic moves that Western Civ, especially the forms we've received it in our culture and context, that are that make kind of a, a idol out of self-expressiveness, um, yeah, authenticity, this this kind of divulging all the intimate details. And I think sexuality is a great place in point. Everyone has to list their sexual whatevers. You know, and it has to be out there. And and notice all the, all the things that should be kind of kept kept incognito <laughs> um, are yeah. the things that are out there. And then you the things about, for example, that should be out there that you know are you know issues of our faith. They have to become privatized. They have to yeah. be kept so that you know. I remember someone trying to ask uh, Hillary Clinton, you know, what her you know what she thought of Jesus. Oh, that's too that's too personal. Well, I mean, I kind of yeah, know what right. she thinks without having to say, but but still, it just shows you that kind of flipping of of what we have here, um, where you know there there is a certain there's a certain priority um, that has been you know put in the wrong place, and yeah. we all can only be fully you know, um, selves if we also participate in that. And I think, it, I think, like you said, I think it's the flip side of that. Um, there is a mystery to even who we are, the subjects we are. It isn't clear and we aren't intimate with it. In matter of fact, you look at the Psalms, I mean, search me and know me, right? Before I can even know myself, I have to be searched by the creator of all things, right? And so, there is a sense that I never really have a sense of the fullness of myself. It's always a gift to be received and understood. And so to act like one can have control and dominance enough to say facts about oneself like that, I think is troubling from the start. Yeah, and I think that the virtue of modesty is about what? 
secrecy. It's about covering things um, so that they aren't made the object of intention. But I, but I think that even when we find ourselves in a society like ours where it's all out, hanging out there, everything is like, you know, uh, what was that daytime television? Jerry Springer? Jerry Springer, <laughs> oh, like, all, you know, the whole thing was about, you know, kind yeah. of laying it all out there, all of the grotesque yeah. and obs- uh, obscene yeah. things, uh, uh, you know, that people were engaged in was on display uh, to the delight of a cheering audience. Um, yet uh, we uh, rightfully still consider it a violation to say, put a camera a hidden camera in the bathroom of an Airbnb, right? So that yeah. the owner can snoop on yeah. the people in the bathroom. We, we all, we're all appalled at that, right? Yeah. Uh, so there still is some yeah. shame and some modesty uh, in the world, even though uh, there's a lot uh, that's happening to try to break all that down. Yeah, I, I think your point that we've, in, in, in a sense, almost inverted the way things should be um, is is a good one where our identities are based on what somebody described as the pelvic issues. Hmm. And we're very open about discussing those kinds of things, you know, who, well, all of those those kinds of questions. But many of the things that are more important and should be public are suppressed. You know, so you're not, there are certain things that you are not allowed to say. You shouldn't be bringing up your faith. You should, you know, it, it, that, that's a private matter. You, that shouldn't be, be an element of public life. That, that should not be discussed at all. But at the same time, we can't get away from reality. So the camera in the bathroom of the Airbnb still, still creeps us out because we have this intuitive knowledge that that is really fundamentally wrong. Yeah. And, you know, you, you can come up with all kinds of reasons that that fit the zeitgeist of why it's wrong, but fundamentally the reason why we think it's wrong is because it is, and we know that in a really deep way. So we can't, we can't escape reality as we're trying to do this, right. but we try. Yeah. I'd like to read a couple of uh, portions from the book that I think are helpful to frame uh, the way we think about this. Um, So like I said, uh, the title of the book is Intellectual Appetite. And Paul Griffiths used to teach at Duke until he got canceled. (laughs) And he got canceled in the right way because he stood up to the DEI nonsense. (laughs) But uh, he was the chairman of, I think, of the Catholic Studies or the Catholic Theology, uh, the chair of Catholic Theology or whatever. Anyway, uh, I don't know where he is today. Uh, hopefully, he's alive and well and eating. I think he's at Catholic University of America. I, I oh, mean, I, okay. I think he's close to retirement, but I think he's. St- I th- if I remember, I, I thought I read that recently. I, c- I could be off on that, but I think he still has a hand in in teaching. Well, that's good. Um, so this this appetite, which is a great way to put it, you know, uh, this hunger to know. Um, he, he describes the legitimate and the illegitimate approaches or, or forms of, of appetite. He says uh, here, this is in the introduction on page nine, 
My interest in intellectual appetite is prompted and stimulated by pre-modern Christian thought about it, and especially by what uh, by that of late antique Christians writing and thinking in Latin. Among the terms they used to describe intellectual appetite was curiositas, which comes into English inevitably but misleadingly as curiosity. Hmm. It was a commonplace uh, for all Latin-using Christian intellectuals, from Tertullian at the end of the second century through at least is that Brousset or Brousset uh, in the seventeenth to say that curiosity is a vice, and that it needs to be distinguished from virtuous forms of the desire to know, which beginning in the third century began to be called studiositas, studiositas. I think that's how it's pronounced. But anyway, long uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, some, yeah, somebody will tell us what it is. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, studiousness and curiosity just don't quite carry uh, the freight that these uh, Latin terms uh, originally carried, which is so often the case. Um, but anyway, so that's the distinction. And what we ought to, to do is uh, give ourselves over to those things that we are called to know and study uh, and turn away from uh, the temptation to learn about things that we shouldn't. Now, here's another interesting quote. This is found on page 13 in the introduction. He says, for pagans too, curiositas could be a crass, vulgar, and dangerous appetite for knowledge no one should want. Knowledge that would damage anyone who might be unfortunate enough to get it. Hmm. So that idea that that there is there are there is a, a a kind of knowledge which does damage to you the knower, um, quite apart from the damage you know that's done to others is something worth reflecting on. I think when we think about uh, children, there's still a kind of I think unreflective but but sound revulsion. Uh, among many people, of, of children being exposed to pornography, for example, or being exposed to, um, you know, salacious and, uh, uh, you know, inappropriate content uh, online or whatever. Um, now, there are people who, who, in the name of making it all just okay, uh, go way out of their way uh, to uh, present n- uh, things to, to children that they're they're really uh, going to be damaged by. Obviously, an example would be uh, the whole LGBTQ drag queen story hour stuff. Um, and uh, so, I, I think at a at a basic level, that's true. But I also think that it's it's almost too easy for us to say, well, yeah, when it comes to kids, that's understandable. But I'm an adult, yeah. and I should be able to have access to anything, any to know anything I want to know. Uh, it won't harm me. <laughs> but really, is that so? Well, I, I think that's a lot of what – I mean, you can read off as, as kind of your own side notes on this book. I mean, he's addressing it for, for a specific purpose of distinguishing uh, a good intellectual appetite from its – deformations um but but these things are great asides because one of the things he mentions 
is the fact that when Christians came into the arena and, and recognized, like the pagan world, that we have desires and appetites. We're hungry. We're finite. We, we're reaching out towards the source of things and towards the things that are here as gift in order to, to you know, basically satiate that appetite. We have an intellectual appetite. We have, you know, loves. We have all these things. And one of the things that Christians are about doing is what we go by often discipleship, but it's what he calls in the book catechetically formed identity, right? That that who we are now um, are and who we were truly created to be when to exercise these appetites as the gifts they are towards receiving things as the gifts they are, not turning them into idols and not having our relationship be perverted loves. That's the significance of, one, understanding the true nature of these things and the true end of them, but also the process of orienting yourself and your loves towards them the right way. And this is why weaning off of false assumptions, truth, for you know, um, is key, uh, and then exposing when we get this wrong, say, you know, a particular, like you said, human sexuality is a good gift, but when it is deformed, it becomes an idol and an enslavement, and it brings about all kinds of unhealthy consequences. So the catechetically informed identity is one that is being, you know, learning the truth about reality, but in the process having their loves um, refashioned. And that's why this is so key, and this is why we go about trying to influence our communities and our families and our culture with taking the riches of that catechism, if you will, and, and putting it out there as a better option for human flourishing and, and fulfillment of our natures. Yeah, I think that, that another way to look at this that may be a little more concrete for people is looking at the concept of the seven deadly sins. Okay, let's just take that as a starting point. It is possible. We all have propensity to sin. That's you know, one of the facts of life. Uh, seven deadly sins are a good catalog of internal sins. But it's possible for us to get certain kinds of knowledge that may be true knowledge, but that tend to push us toward one or another of these vices. You know, we've been talking about sex. That's an obvious one. But... What about reading news that is true, but that is intended to get you angry, yeah. to get you to, to provoke wrath, to provoke you to hate your neighbor? Um, you know, that would be another example. Uh, there, there's plenty one. of news that we can get that can push us toward avarice mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so on. So again, these it doesn't even have to be a falsehood. Mm -hmm. But these are kinds yeah, of knowledge that are dangerous to us. Yeah, so here's one that many people just take to, as a kind of peccadillo that we shouldn't get too uh, sort of worked up about. Gossip. Gossip is, a, is you know, uh, the circulating... Uh, uh, in a community of, um, you know, uh, news about people that uh, is in some sense uh, uh, puts 
the people that are being talked about in a bad light or intended to give you some some kind of uh, schadenfreude, you know, the idea, you know, that you, you just kind of take a, a sort of a delight in the bad, the, the bad news about somebody else so that maybe you feel better about yourself or you just, you just, you know, you just want that person to be harmed uh, because um, you feel like they uh, are made too much of or something. Um, yeah, I think that this, this is very subtle stuff. And in each case, um, you know, there's, there's a way that you can gloss it. Like gossip uh, is just sharing prayer requests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we just we just need to be you know watch and pray <laughs> that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, uh, or uh, you know we need to uh, fight evil. Therefore, we need to just uh, have a constant stream of exposure uh, when it comes to wickedness. Uh, but there's a kind of fascination uh, with that. And, and even the outrage can be kind of pleasing. You can kind of take a perverse pleasure in getting angry. Um, yeah, there's, there is, yeah, it's uh, like Ch Chesterton's famous line about sort of, you know, the modern world is kind of Christian truths gone mad, you know, rip, ripped from their theological and then kind of left hanging, if you will, or, or connected to a, a counter narrative. But one of the things that comes up in that is you take something, like you said, like justice, right, can be a very abstract term if it isn't if it isn't located in a in a good sound theology and philosophy, um, and it plays to our natures for justice to be achieved. We have a desire for that and and things to be you know paid back or resolved the right way, but when that can be exploited, when that can be used to stir up, as you just said, anger about, you know, righteous indignation, um, but it is not a full picture of, of the reality that we're claiming, you know, is just, nor the solution. Um, this is where we get into this kind of very dangerous territory because it hides behind the mask. You talk about something hidden that doesn't show itself. It hides behind a virtue, a vice, and uh, that's the kind of that's I think what that was sold in the garden, right? And that's why yeah. this notion of duplicity and and the like is is so key to Christian thinking about the lie. Yeah, it's such a it's such a subtle um, set of distinctions. So on the one hand, uh, trust is established through revelation. In other words. Now, how that revelation can, can be uh, come about, it, you know, is is uh, important. You know, people talk about transparency with institutions um, and backroom deals and things like that, and how that undermines trust. Uh, at the same time, um, does that give you the right to go through the filing cabinets of uh, any you know group or institution that maybe you? have, uh, some suspicions about, or, uh, you know, so I guess, you know, the question is how, how does it get revealed? I've been thinking a lot about Casablanca, as you guys know, that's uh, because <laughs> it's a fascinating kind of study, uh, in a world where there's zero trust. And, um, 
the government is criminal, made, run by criminals, um, and there are two other kinds of criminals who are criminalized by the government. One are genuine criminals, and the other is uh, the other are are people who are too good to go along with crime, <laughs> mm-hmm. and they're and they're criminals now. And mm-hmm. so, in an environment like that, where there's just suspicion, just you know, everywhere, how do you know you can trust somebody? Mm-hmm. Um, what happens in the film is everybody trusts Rick, right? Uh, the owner of Rick's Cafe. Uh, I can't remember the American. I think that's the, the full <laughs> name of it. But but how do they how do they know they can trust him? Uh, for one thing, Rick has secrets. He doesn't just tell everybody everything about himself. Uh, he's got secrets about his past. Uh, he, you know, uh, you get at different points in the film little kind of revelations about about his past uh, from the Nazis or the the French authorities who know who have a file on him. So we know that he was a freedom fighter in Ethiopia resisting the fascist Italians and stuff like that. We, you know, he, mm-hmm. he's a good-hearted guy. Um, but at the same time, he's a hard nut. I mean, he's not afraid to stand up to people, put people in their place, or these different kinds of things. But how does he reveal his, his true character? It's through the courage of his convictions and through helping people in need. Uh, there's that episode in the film where there's this woman. Uh, so everybody, just in case you haven't seen the film, um, there everybody's trying to escape uh, Europe as the Nazis advance, and they and they've uh, come to Morocco, uh, and it's uh, sort of a, a haven, uh, but it's also sort of a, a place where people are trying to, you know, get out of uh, you know that part of the world to the United States through Lisbon, and and the only way you can get out is if you have letters of transit. And so, uh, what happens in the film is uh, you've got these letters of transit that everybody wants to get access to, and Rick is uh, confided in by Peter Lorre, uh, Ugarte, if I remember correctly, and he says to him, Rick, you're. Yeah. Yeah, Rick, it's because you despise me that uh, you're the only man I trust. <laughs> so, so it's another, in other words, it's, it's because of uh, his moral character that even the bad guys trust him. <laughs> you do good, Peter Lorre, actually. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> but isn't that fascinating how? You know, this, this, but really this is kind of the way it is for all of us every day. I mean, we live in a world where we're not really sure we can trust. Uh, and, and one of the reasons is we, we, we are keeping some things to ourselves, which we should, and we don't just lay it all out there all the time. But, but, uh, but then when people do reveal something about themselves, how do we know they're telling us the truth? And what's, yeah. what's the litmus test for knowing this is the real person? Yeah, some some of us may just, you know, for the first time bump up into that by just making a huge mistake, say, on the Internet. Say you're scrolling through Facebook and you come up to 14,000 books for X amount of dollars, right? Um, in you know, and all of a sudden you've put your information, your credit card details and everything else, and all of a sudden you found out you've basically been, you know, feeding a family halfway across the world or, or <laughs> a crime family for that matter. Right, right. And, and so, but what have you done? You've revealed those things that affect you that should be something that shouldn't be just thrown out there indiscriminately. And just because the internet makes, uh, uh, you know, claims 
something or looks like a legitimate ad doesn't mean this is all it adds up to. And I think the same thing in, you know, in sort of putting, you know, don't put your pearls before the swine. There is a, there is, um, wisdom and a, a certain kind of scrupulosity we should have before, you know, entrusting certain fundamental things about ourselves, our family. I mean, this is why I think in, in ministry in particular and, and, and the kinds of safeguards scripture gives to help develop contexts for trust, right? I think it's so important. And you, you do see in this case that you know, language and and what we reveal, what we don't, knowledge, knowledge about us personally, um, knowledge that doesn't belong to other people, but maybe something that sacredly you can share with those you do trust. I think probably the worst place where you can have that breakdown, of course, is maybe a trusted friend, but, you know, having ministry break that trust. And, and my wife, she works in family therapy, and that would be an area, they, they talk about everything. And, had, have they go out and talk about that with others, they would lose the credibility of the field. So there's kind of a, a commitment to an oath about not breaking that trust. Yeah, yeah that is one of the challenges with any kind of uh, work along that line. Obviously, as a pastor, people tell you stuff all the time. And one of the things I generally caution people about is don't tell me anything you don't have to tell me. Because yeah. yeah. uh, I, I, you know, the, the weight of knowledge, that's another thing. Yeah. If you know a lot of stuff about people and you cannot share it, there's a kind of burden uh, that you carry. Um, now, I'm okay with it. I mean, it's not like it's, it's keeping me awake at night. <laughs> but it's just one of those things where um, sometimes they I'm told things I don't need to know. Yeah. And uh, they would have done me a favor by not telling me, they probably would have done themselves a favor by not talking about that. Um, and again, I, I, I get back to this sort of contemporary infatuation with authenticity and transparency, which I think is so endemic in the evangelical uh, world. Um, like, uh, you know, come to our church where everybody is completely open and never, you know, yeah. holds back. <laughs> really, that's where you want to be. <laughs> that's the place I do not want to go. Thaddeus <laughs> Williams has a, a new book out. It's called something like, don't be true to yourself. <laughs> I'm yeah. not sure that's the exact title, but that, but it's basically, you know, around the idea that, you know, our obsession with authenticity is really not a good thing that, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, being true to yourself is really the wrong direction to be going. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. My favorite example of this is, comes from Michael Miller from the Acton Institute. Um, we did a, um, an ethics curriculum called Doing the Right Thing, and, and Michael was one of the guys on the panel with me. And at one point he said something like, be true to yourself is really terrible advice. What if you're a jerk? That's right. Yeah, it's well, and, and notice how I mean, scripture continuously subverts that malformed love, if you will, or that hatred. And because what it does is basically, 
you know, whoever wants to come after me, says Christ, must deny themselves, not know that their selves, right? I mean, there is a, in, in the denying of self, there is a kind of knowledge of self that it is, it is sinful and it's turned in on itself. And that the way to freedom to actually receive yourself the right way, which means non-idolatrously, um, is to to locate it within its proper place within the hierarchy of goods. And that is oriented towards Christ, the center. And as a matter of fact, you say, you know, you have this whole lesson in Colossians where set your mind on him who is above, not on the things, not on loves down here, wrongly basically embraced. And so as you do that, as you order yourself towards love the right way, then you no longer are enslaved to those things or you're being more and more free. And that's when you receive the gift of yourself the right way, where it isn't the dominating center that needs to express itself. Rather, in its truthful enactment of its creatureliness, it manifests the glory of God and its own glory. So everything you're looking for in the self-authentication is actually given in a much fuller and vibrant way. And I think this is where the true poetic and creative comes out, because through our own participation in that, we're part of the glory of creation. So what we do and what we build and what we do as it's ordered the right way have a, have a lasting place in God's building of a, te- of a temple. Now, I'd like to take this in a little different direction. And what I'd like us to consider is the fact that God hides. So it's not as though uh, God is utterly transparent. <laughs> so you remember the prayer that Solomon prays at the dedication of the temple, and he he notes that God dwells in thick darkness, where the eye, the light of the eye, cannot penetrate. Uh, we're told in Proverbs that God hides His purposes. Uh, now we're also told that you know kings search them out, search certain things out. So there are some things that are hidden with the hope that someone will find them. Like we think about the parable of the treasure, you know, buried in a field. But then there are other things that are just off limits. That's for me to know. At the end of Job, uh, here's Job asking all of his questions. You know, what happened? Why? All this kind of stuff. And what does God do? God just (laughs) humiliates him. He says, where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did that? Uh, and then leaves them completely in the in the dark. Yeah. None <laughs> of your none of, of your business is really that's what. right. None, <laughs> of, none of your business. But we we as readers of the of the story know exactly what was going on because in the introduction we're told this is this yeah. is a contest between Satan yeah. and the Lord, yeah. and uh, Job doesn't realize that he's God's champion, <laughs> but uh, he's and he's not he's not brought in on it. Uh, yeah. At least uh, at, by the end of the story, maybe in, in the New Jerusalem, you know, he gets to read his own book or something. I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, but you get my drift. So if God is like this, um, and, then, and then we're also promised that someday we will know even as we are fully known. So right now, God knows us fully. Yeah. We don't know him fully. We look through a glass darkly. So it, yeah. for the time being... God hides himself. But what is an apocalypse? It's a revelation. It's a, yeah. an uncovering. There will be a day when, when yeah. every eye shall see him. Um, and that day is something that is uh, awful to consider in a good sense and a bad sense. In, in a good sense, yeah. we will all be filled with awe. But for those who are damned, it will be awful in the quote, you know, the sort of the normal sense of the term. 
It's it's interesting that you know you you often I mean, it's not just the Reformation and, and Luther who emphasized both the hidden and manifest natures of of God's presence. Um, God's presence is such that it is so close to us, right? That it is unseeable and it's unapproachable light, right? Um, it, it remains that even in you know the beatific vision, there is always a surplus, right? There is always that which you know even even when we get to know beyond the you know the mirror darkly there will always be be that about god but it was interesting that luther i remember da- uh, david steinitz one time talking about luther's way of putting grabbing a hold of faith's knowledge and and he he put it this way is faith is grabbing hold of the apparent no of god to grab a hold of the unseen yes <laughs> and i i huh. love that i love yeah, that good. i mean it's, it's his way of putting putting that everything that sometimes looks like darkness and God's absence is really the place at which God is most intimately present and working all things for his own good. And that faith's knowledge is one that is able to grab, to see it and grab a hold of it without possessing it and actually controlling it. So that's an interesting way of putting it, Tom, because many people would say that faith is the antithesis of knowledge. In other words, uh, blind faith is what people sometimes dismissively say. Uh, whereas the way you put it, uh, faith is a kind of knowledge. And I think yeah. that's correct. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a way of knowing. It's knowledge that recognizes that surplus and, and, and God's proper transcendence, that, that it's going to look for those who are eclipsed to that transcendence as ignorance and stupidity and everything else. But when, when seen in that light, you'll see that it is wisdom. Um, you'll see that it is it is it, the fulfillment of all creaturely knowing and and its you know its aims and goals. And I think it is important to, to that that is one of the key limits that helps structure not delving into those dimensions that become the 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 you know the desire of the studious uh, you know the, or the one says he's put it there. The, I mean the curious. Sorry um, that 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 is a boundary. Um, and that is why what God, God sits there and tells you basically what's going to happen, and yet we want to push beyond that boundary and and see for ourselves. We want to we want to possess like you know knowledge like God does. Yeah, which of course is just impossible even at just a you know an ontological level. We're finite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're back it. to Genesis three as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Now thinking about the fact that we have to do things or, or, or make choices, uh, act in a world where we don't have uh, all of the information at our disposal. Uh, God uh, obviously has all the information at his disposal because the, the what the information is about is what he's created and continues to sustain. <laughs> so, you know, knowing and being for God is one and the same thing. Um for us, uh, you know, that's definitely not the case. There's just a whole lot more that we don't know than we do. Um, in the old statement, you know, he doesn't know what he doesn't know is just completely apropos. I mean, you know, we, 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 you know, we, we even the most, even the, the, the humblest of us uh, should be even humbler mm-hmm. <laughs> because there's so much we don't know. But still, even though we don't, know as much as we'd like to know we have to act we it, it, there's even non-action is action in other words where you say i'm just going to stand here and wait till i know yeah. more well guess what you're on a conveyor belt called time 
and it doesn't uh, sit. You know, you, you're not sitting still. Uh, so the inaction is a kind of action, whether you want it to be or not. So you know, getting this gets me to uh, Pascal's wager. Um, oftentimes, people misread the wager. Um, it's not me- it's not intended to be an airtight uh, reasoned argument for uh, as a proof for the existence of God. Hmm. Uh, what it what it's essentially saying is you're never going to know everything you want to know, <laughs> yeah, right? You could, so uh, when it comes to God, you know, you're just not going to know everything you want to know. And it doesn't matter because uh, you must choose. That's the wager. So you're, you're in the dark, but you have to act. So what are you going to act on? And that's where the wager, I think, becomes a little bit weak because he just says, okay, what you need to do is weigh out the pluses and minuses of yeah, each calculus. choice. And yeah, yeah kind of do that. Uh, I think there's more, we have more to work with than that. We've got God's promises and, and yeah. God's revelation and even you know, what our own reason can tell us, uh, as incomplete yep. as, as that is. On the wager, the the usual argument against it is, okay, so which God should I believe in? There are a lot of choices. But in Pascal's context, that really wasn't an argument. But the problem with most people's dealing with the wager is they they stop it before Pascal finishes his argument. The rest of his argument, which may actually be relevant to what we're talking about here, says the only sane thing to do is to bet that God exists. But here's the problem. You can't. (laughs) You can't place that bet in the absence of God letting you do it. So what you need to do is to seek God's grace to enable you to place that bet. Um, yeah, I you think know, that's a great point. He's he's operating in a very Augustinian framework. Yeah, yeah, which makes sense is because he's responding to the Jesuits anyway. Right, and, and began to <laughs> the Augustinian, and he was involved with them. Right, yeah. so. right. But I, I think um, this the, the fact that we find ourselves in a world where there will always be far more. Uh, darkness than light in terms of our understanding. We have to operate within the framework of what we can know uh, legitimately. And what we can know, and this gets back to, you know, uh, Scripture where we're told um, the things that really are not for us to know remain hidden, but there are things that we've been given, God's law, you know, revelation, these things have been given to us. Study those things. Occupy your mind with those things. Um, now, I don't. I don't think that that means we can't study, say, you know, uh, the human body and try to understand how cancer works. I'm not saying that. I think that there are that that would actually be a, a, a way to be studious yeah. Um, yeah. in the right sense, because well, what that, you're striving yeah. for is the is health and life. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're working with gifts and you're receiving them as gifts and trying to understand kind of some of the keys that have tended towards basically impacting negatively those gifts as somewhat parts from the fall for that matter and you're you're trying to 
to reverse it. I mean, you're trying to bring health to that which should be healthy, right? You're trying to preserve life where life should be preserved within those boundaries. Um, And this is an interesting area because I think now that technology allows us to move into curiosity in radically deep ways, whether it's in the field of bioethics, whether it's in the field of, well, I mean, just look at the carving up and chopping up of the body for that matter. Um, it, and I think it was Paul Griffiths who had this great way of putting it as we basically, I don't know, I don't know, I quoted it the other day, something about having a sword that allows us, the fall is having a sword that allows us basically to chop up each part of our members. I mean, um, and, and so what you have here, and this is kind of a lot of what the book is about, is that, you know, there are gifts that have God's stamp on them in terms of why they're here and how they're to be related to and received. And there are boundaries uh, in that knowing that receives that gifts and relates to it the right way, both for its own good and your own good. Um, These are goods, and this allows the plenitudes of good to multiply, if you will. Or there are these things that we're going to move into out of a deformed attempt to master them, a curiosity that is unhealthy because it wants to basically have this secret knowing that allows it to have dominance in some way. And we start tearing and ripping, you know, even some of Bacon's language is basically tearing apart the creation. I mean, that language is already there, whatever other goods some of his his thinking had. And so... You basically, I mean, your plate, we, we are at a point where a lot are not going to go along with us and our boundaries and our limit. And we are going to have to be at a place of, you know, where we, we can't remain indifferent. We are going to have to go to battle um, for the preservation of the goods of, of even creatures and their bodily natures for that matter, sometimes against their own self-expressive will. And that's not easy. That's going to be where I think one of the, you know, this is where what Tolkien and and Lewis, they had an idea of where it was heading. We're, we're in that place now. <laughs> and uh, that's why yeah, they, getting a hold of this is so key. Yeah, and they had some uh, contemporary events that uh, were crude versions of what we have today, you know, with the Nazis and their eugenics and, you know, the communists and their purges and oppression. Um, Getting to this, you know, one of the things that Griffiths gets into is what you just talked about, Tom, and that's, you know, this, this curiositas uh, is, is uh, motivated by a, the prospect of control and domination. And there are certain kinds of, uh, in, there are lines of inquiry that lend themselves to this. So like when we think about something maybe apparently as innocuous as advertising, um, you know, if you look at say older forms of advertising, they were almost laughably crude in the sense that they would just describe the product. <laughs> get, get Coca-Cola, it tastes great. You know, okay, great. Okay, <laughs> now uh, the the kind of psychoanalysis or psycholo- psychological sort of manipulation that goes on in advertising is uh, diabolical. You know, the way things are suggested, colors, uh, the tempo, the the sort of the the total experience of it that you're immersed uh, 
That's one of the things that's, I think, enlightening about looking at the old advertising is it's, it's so boring. And you, yeah. you look at some of this old stuff and you say, man, this is just, I mean, this is just some guy in his living room drinking his schlitz and saying, I like it. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Actually, Chris, I, I, there, the counterpoint to this, I, I'm going to move from advertising back to science. Um, you know, this idea of science as technology ripping things apart and reordering them for our purposes. James Clerk Maxwell, who is yeah. considered by physicists the third most important physicist in history after Einstein and Newton. Maxwell was an evangelical Christian, and he made this comment about science. Um, let me pull it up here. Uh, I think that men of science, as well as other men, need to learn from Christ. And I think that Christians whose minds are scientific are bound to study science, that this view of the glory of God may be as extensive as their being is capable of. Hmm. You know, so from Maxwell, he's not thinking of science in terms of technological dominance or anything like that. He's thinking about it as a way of revealing the glory of God. And a, way, a unique way that only people who are gifted in that area can reveal. So yeah, it's, it's that's what you'd the call pure science. Yeah, yeah, well, that's the difference between studiositas and curiositas. Yeah, and and I do he, think he part studious. of, and and I do think part of the vision of salvation, which of course salvation is healing bound up with it, and as we're called to bring all things into conformity to Christ. We are called to look back at the creation as those being redeemed and bring the riches of that redemption to it. Science would be one of those when used the right way, because we do, in a temporal way, bring about some reversals through that kind of wisdom and knowledge. And it took the doctrine of creation and redemption for, for a lot of those things to, to really take on that kind of emphasis. But like you say, with every with every good thing that light that Christ has brought through the world through his people, there's also become its shadow. And, and that, that shadow is intent on mimicking and undermining, um, you know, and, and being, you know, how, how, do you, how else do you get science that, it, it, you, know, that you know, it's a complicated history, but it definitely, in, in its most significant forms, owes so much to the Christian vision of things, and then now how it's read as, as a completely atheistic, materialistic interpretation of reality. I mean, you get that because it takes, it takes on a set of riches, and it creates a shadow set, and then it claims dominance in, in the interpretive world. Yeah, which just goes to show that there's no escaping this battle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that... You know, I think one way to understand, say, uh, monasticism that's positive is that uh, the, the, you know, monastics w went into the cell or into the desert to, to, to fight. Yeah. Um, the other way that's negative is to sort of say they went to find purity uh, and um, avoid any entanglements, any temptation that they might uh, encounter. Um, I think there's still that, uh, kind of impulse everywhere. Um, you know, in one sense we could say the temperance movement in the United States has two sides. 
there really was a problem with alcoholism. I mean, there was a, a huge problem, and it led to all sorts of social um, problems, uh, everything from wife beating to you know, neglect of children, that kind of stuff. On the other hand, um, it uh, didn't accomplish, you know, the temperance movement didn't accomplish what it set out to accomplish uh, on its own terms, uh, but uh, actually helped to create the conditions for a whole new set of vices. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and what we need uh, is, I'm reminded, you know, we've mentioned Tolkien already, but I remember there's that marvelous dialogue between Gimli and Galadriel. <laughs> And Galadriel is blessing the members of the company, if you recall, before they depart. And uh, he's really won her heart. Uh, And she says to him, uh, may your hands uh, flow with gold and may gold have no hold over you. Hmm. That's the challenge. So uh, to enjoy the goods of creation in a way that... um, is fully aware of uh, the wrong uses, but is strong enough to enjoy the good without indulging in the wrong uses. Yeah. That's what I think we should strive for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's an interesting side to the uh, the Gimli incident with Galadriel. Um, he asks for a lock of her hair. <laughs> And he says, she gave me three. Hmm. In the Silmarillion, I'm not sure if it's in the Silmarillion or in the history of Middle-earth, Feanor, the great smith of the elves, um, the greatest of the elves, who Galadriel never trusted, he asked her three times for a lock of her hair and she refused him three times. Because she That's didn't trust him and she knew he was, he, you know, he, he's the kind of person who was curious rather than studious, okay, to use right, the terms right. we've been using. But Gimli isn't like that. And so she's, she gives him the very things that she refused to Fanor. That's a fascinating contrast. I, I hadn't thought of that. And again, you know, it's, 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 not, a, it's not as though there are goods that we shouldn't enjoy. It's just that enjoying them in the right way is requires a kind of character. That's not all that common. Right. And she didn't see that character in Feanor, but she didn't Gimli. Yeah. Hmm. Well, getting back to knowledge, um, <laughs> you know, thinking about lots of different things, everything from atomic energy and atom bombs hmm. to, you know, uh, cosmetic surgery uh, you know, there are, there's an upside and a downside to everything. But anyway, uh, I think we should wrap it up. We've got to that point. <laughs> so thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast. We're really grateful that you have uh, made it all the way to the end. And uh, if you like what you've heard and you'd like to support the show, uh, that's very much appreciated. You can go to our Patreon account, which is, uh, there's a link to it in the show notes. And you can go there and become a monthly supporter. Anyway, um, I guess that's it. Anything that uh, maybe you guys want to say before we wrap up? All right, then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. To learn more about the church, you can visit trinityreformedkirk.com, trinityreformedkirk.com.